Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 52 of Confessions of a Market Maker. I'm your co-host, Ray, a.k.a. All Day Ray, a.k.a. Ninja Turtle Cabs. And I'm joined here by my preeminent co-host, former market maker of 20 years and current day retail trader, a man who got too deep into the game. So like James Harden, he had to take a step back. He's leading more noble pursuit now, enlightening retail traders on the true nature of the shark infested waters. So they're dipping their toes in. I am talking about the Sri Lankan Rick Ross, JJ. How's it going? How you doing? Good, brother. How are you? I'm doing good, man. Doing good as usual. And our guest today, she's a rising star in the investment banking arena, a woman who works in asset management for the DWS group, which is one of the world's leading asset managers of with 700 billion under uh, assets under management, former D1 athlete and a beer, wine and cocktail connoisseur, aka dead cat bounce. I'm talking about Caitlin Cook. Caitlin, how's it going? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing good. Yes, yes. Our pleasure. Uh, Caitlin, we both had the pleasure of hosting a segment for the Stocks Stock Twitch Chip for Charity Poker Tournament. A lot of the hosts seem to know you very well. I was uh, fortunate to be invo- invited by Troy Prince, but I don't think anyone else uh, really knew me as a young person in finance. How did you come to network with a lot of these esteemed people? Uh, Well, I am a huge networker. I am very outgoing for sure, which definitely helps, but also very big into the social media. Uh, Twitter especially had a finance professor in college that I worked with pretty closely. Let me know about, you know, FinTwit or finance Twitter, uh, as people call it. And I just in the past few years since then and working, um, I I live in Chicago now, moved here for my job, um, have gotten the opportunity to meet a lot of people through Twitter. And it's just kind of been... um, snowballing from there. So I've made a lot of really good connections, just, you know, interacting online and then eventually getting to meet in person and, you know, in non COVID times, which has been really awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's a humongous skill to have. Is that something that's always come natural to you? Is it something that you've developed over the years? Uh, it's definitely something that's come natural to me. I was always that kid in, in class that maybe talked a little bit too much or was always, you know, making making new friends. And I played, I played a lot of sports and did a lot of traveling for that, met a lot of new people along the way. So I do think that just my upbringing generally sort of, you know, it catered to someone that had the ability to make new connections pretty quickly with people. Um, so I do think that that was probably a big part of it, but I do think it came naturally as well. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's good. That's good. You're, you're putting it to good effect, you know, cause I felt, you know, I was telling you before I, I felt, I don't want to say like out of place, you know, but like nobody, like, I'm a former poker player. Like none of these people knew me and, and you're, we were all, you know, we were actually on the stream together and like, mm-hmm. if they seem to know you a little bit more and I'm like, How did, like she, she's in there, she's, she's doing her thing. So, you know, that, that was, that was awesome to see. Um, Kat, you were a, uh, a D1 athlete. Uh, what was it? Soccer? It was. Uh, so yeah, I was recruited for soccer. I, um, I think I played maybe three or four weeks. Um, not, not an injury or anything necessarily just made a pretty big decision on whether I wanted to play or not. Just a real big time commitment, um, decided I could be using my time in much better ways. And, you know, was pretty passionate about finance and getting serious about my, my degree and finishing school early too. So 
Um, one of the best decisions I've ever made, a really tough one. Uh, I played college, soccer from literally the time that I could walk. I had two older siblings that were multi-sport athletes, so my parents got me right into it. Um, and, you know, getting recruited was a big deal. I was excited about it, but, um, you know, when it came down to it, I just made the decision to go without. So brought me in a different track, too. So I don't know if I would be doing necessarily the same things that I'd be, I'm doing right now if I hadn't made that choice. Right, right, for sure. I, I have this theory that ex-athletes, you know, I, I've never played at like a D1 level, but, you know, I grew up playing sports. I'm still am active. And I have this theory that uh, trading or just finance in general, it's, it's still a good way to, a good outlet for that competitive drive and still, you know, still compete as an adult, you know, away from the field. Uh, would you do, would you agree with that statement? Absolutely. I think it's just so competitive in nature generally. And especially when you get into, I feel like trading specifically, it's sort of like a chase or a challenge every day. There's something new that you could be going after and it's, it's very dynamic. So I think that having that background and, you know, being competitive as an athlete beforehand kind of prepares you for how to handle that. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And just a reminder to the listeners that if you guys would like to trade alongside JJ, myself, and a supportive community of traders, we're trading futures, equities, and options. Join us at microefutures.com. So Caitlin, when did you know you wanted to get into finance? Uh, so probably towards the end of high school, I knew that I had wanted to do something in business. Uh, I had an aunt that works as a financial advisor, so got a little bit of exposure to the industry through her. Um, I, I kind of peeked a little bit into um, the other parts of business, accounting, marketing, and um, hated accounting, knew that wasn't going to work. I was good at math, but it's just, um, I feel like accounting is very black and white, and that wasn't really how my mind worked. I knew immediately in my first accounting class that that was never like a career that I would go after. Um, marketing, definitely a little bit more interesting. Never took an actual finance class in high school, but just from a lot of conversations I had had and sort of talking with my aunt and learning a bit about it that way, I took the jump and decided to choose that as my major and figured I could always switch if I didn't end up liking it. But I think what really got me was the sort of um, cornerstone where networking and having that relationship management side meets with the sort of more quantitative and math ability too um, was probably what stemmed my interest first. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I, I saw you, um, it's probably a couple of days ago, you, you posted that you won a contest back in, uh, in college. It was like a college course. You won a, some <laughs> finance contest that exempted you from, or exempted you from the exam. And, you know, I, I was thinking on that, you know, studying and like, like reading books and stuff like there, there's people, that's how they first like found their like love for, uh, finance. What, what type of like impact did that have on you? Uh, I think. I had great professors in college, which definitely helped. I think having someone that passionate about what they're doing, teaching you what they know um, makes a really big difference, just having that passion behind it. So having, having teachers throughout college that were very um, into you know, markets and everything like that certainly helped. Uh, probably the biggest thing that got me most interested in a career in finance, I was my freshman year. So after I had quit soccer, was just trying to find my way. The semester started. I was brand new in school, wanted to meet people. And I um, was told to join my school's student-run investment fund. We had around, I think, half a million um, 
in, in real money and students were making all of the stock pitches, whether that was individual securities, ETFs, um, and everyone was invited to join. It wasn't necessarily some sort of hierarchy or you needed to apply to be included. Um, we had around like 50, 60 kids at least. And it was just a really good way to meet people. So I decided to show up for the first meeting. Um, didn't understand most of what they were saying, but was really interested to learn more. Um, decided to stick with it and I ended up loving it. So that was um, one of the biggest things that impacted me, I'd say, right when I started school, then I knew that I, this is exactly what I wanted to do. For sure, for sure. So there's this there's, there's tournament, or I think you described it as like a, like a bracket style tournament. Well, tell us a little bit about the tournament. How did you win this? What was involved? Uh, so it was for my intro to finance class. Uh, I, I think it was the first semester of my second year of school, actually my first actual formal finance class. And we had been learning, you know, all the terminology and, you know, bond pricing calculations, things like that, pretty general finance knowledge that even if you don't have a career in it, it's good to know, um, had been learning that all semester. And by the end, my, uh, my professor's a big uh, basketball player, big basketball fan. My school had D1 basketball as well. So just a big basketball school. Uh, and we decided to do a March Madness tournament at the end of every single semester that he taught for all of his classes. And it just took all of the students in class, um, lightning rounds of, I believe it was best of three questions. And you sat across from someone at a table and you each had a bell in front of you. The, the question came up on the board and basically just whoever gave the right answer first won. Mm. Um, so definitely very competitive right up my alley. I, I got very into it. I, uh, <laughs> I had done really well in the class and I, um, I think I had been ranked first in the class. So even if I hadn't have won, I don't, I think it was, I was up there as a contender to get the exemption. Just, it was like a point system or something, but I just really wanted to win. So I yeah. went pretty hard at it. It was really fun though. So that's like one of my favorite, probably class memories that I have from college too. It was really, really fun. Excellent. Excellent. And you, you've always, you've always done well uh, academically, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, I, I was always kind of didn't had got along really well with, you know, not being pretty book smart and doing well with exams, which I mean, I know a lot of brilliant people that, you know, aren't great test takers. I just got lucky that way mm -hmm. that I was. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now you, you went to a uh, Catholic college, correct? Well, how was that experience? I did, but the nice thing about, and I think there's like a, a misconception around, you know, like Catholic or just religious universities generally, and I can't speak for other schools. Um, St. Bonaventure was really, really cool in the fact that it wasn't, it, and I can say this legitimately was not pushing any sort of agenda. And the reason for it being was it was Catholic Franciscan and the Franciscans are really, it's more like universal things that regardless of what your actual faith is, you can pretty much support like really, really big on volunteering. It was mostly just giving back to the community was kind of what, you know, the whole Franciscan part of it was really about. So, I mean, we had a really diverse, I mean, group of students and everything like that. There wasn't any, there wasn't really much like required religious coursework, anything like that. I know some other schools that have like church hours that you need to go to. I mean, all power to you if you, you know, if that's the school you want to go to, but we did not have any of that. So more just an emphasis on just generally being a good person and giving back as much as you can. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Great stuff. So tell us about your employer DWS and uh, the type of role you have there. Yeah, uh, so DWS, it's ex-Deutsche Bank Asset Management, IPO'd uh, a couple years back, 2018. One of the larger asset managers in the world, based in Germany, um, have a pretty diverse um, product lineup with a lot of different asset managers. They may just kind of um, 
focus in on one asset class or um, maybe one or two specific products that they're good at and that's all they sell. Um, we have a really diverse lineup of ETFs and mutual funds. We have some direct real estate offerings as well, um, both in for retail investors, um, just working with regular financial advisors that you and I know from you know the internet or if you have a financial advisor yourself um, or working with institutional clients. So Fortune 100 companies, things like that. Um, my job within the firm, I work in distribution. So you have the portfolio managers who manage our active mutual funds. They're making changes within the portfolios based on, you know, the market and what's working and what isn't, what the portfolio strategy is, um, and kind of making decisions based on that. We have people that we have passive products or so ETFs, and we have people who oversee all of that. I work in distribution. So my job is to get assets into those products. So I'm just front office sales, working with financial advisors, their analysts, um, some larger teams, and just kind of figuring out what solutions will work best for their clients, depending on, you know, what the market's doing or how they manage their portfolio for clients, what their clients are looking for specifically. Um, so kind of um, a lot of, a lot of product knowledge needed, but it's definitely pretty relationship based as well. Mm -hmm. um, you have, you know, your bigger clients that you work with really closely. Sometimes it's a little bit more transactional where people don't you know, they might need like a commodities fund or something, and you just might be one that popped up, but they don't necessarily want to be meeting with you, you know, quarterly. So um, kind of a lot of different things going on. Um, a lot of things thrown at you at once. I started out out of college too. So a really good first job, um, kind of drinking through a fire hose for the first few months after <laughs> licensing, but I, I kind of liked learning about things that way. Yeah. Yeah. So to tell us about the process, how you got the job. Was it a like, uh, rigorous thing you, you said you got to write out of college how did that come about uh a lot of networking so i mm -hmm. um in my school's student investment fund we had some different like manager roles and i had wanted to be a manager as early on as possible i wanted the responsibility but a lot of them were i mean they were just titles but like oh um the general manager or you know equity managers and there were the people that generally were a little bit more, you know, technically gifted or a little bit more senior. So usually people in MBA or, you know, seniors. And at the end of my freshman year, um, the person who was our human resources manager and operations um, was graduating and they planned our, you know, annual trips to Chicago in New York city to visit alumni and kind of have, you know, networking events, learn about different jobs. And I kind of jumped all over it when I knew that he was leaving. I started working with him a little more closely and just, Kind of put a bug in his ear that, that that was something that I was interested in, something I'd be good at. So through the next um, two years of my degree before I graduated, I still had that role in the club. Um, turned out I was good at it. So just making kind of connections and setting meetings, everything like that. Um, made a lot of really good connections um, just by way of, you know, talking to people when you're planning trips. And just uh, we had like weekly calls with alumni to talk about what they do and different opportunities open for seniors and people looking for jobs. Um, met a lot of people, but made a few really good connections, one of whom he's a portfolio manager at my current firm. Um, so he, he knew what I was looking for. We kept in touch over the years when I was still in school, um, knew what I was looking for, knew I was a big relationship person, just you know, he knew me pretty well. So pretty easy to tell once we're, you know, connected if someone's good at that stuff. Um, and there was an opening in December of my senior year. He was like, I can't make any promises. I'll connect you with someone, you know, um, see how it goes, see if it's anything you're interested in. Ended up keeping in touch with the people at the firm that I had spoken with initially to learn about the role. By the time our spring trip to Chicago came around, I had um, 
you know, kept bugging them. I mean, you know, um, tactfully bug- bugging them like every few <laughs> few months or so. Like, I'm still interested, you know, is this still an opportunity? Um, got an interview set up when I was there in the spring and then had my offer come in by graduation. So started off with, you know, knowing the right people, but, you know, persistence, yes. I think probably played a part in that too. For sure. I mean, great, great qualities, networking, persistence. JJ, I, I want to ask you, right? Uh, because, you know, okay, Caitlin, we're, we're traders, you know, I guess, you know, well, our realms of the world, we're both in finance, but it's like a little bit different, right? And mm-hmm. JJ, I, I want to ask you, right, with, with your dealings with, I don't know if you, you've known any guys from, from uh, Deutsche Bank. I know you've probably known asset managers i'm just curious to the differences maybe in like personalities or like lifestyles between you know the guys you were with you know traders and like asset managers well you got to remember i i I lived in the days where we didn't have cell phone cameras so um we got away with a lot um but um (laughs) i'm just I'm, i'm curious to see what it's like working in um, a large structured environment now because I worked at a small brokerage firm. Um, I never worked for one of the large banks. So Deutsche, I mean, it's not Deutsche, but it's, you know, probably what's the culture like there for you? How do you find it uh, as a young person? Um, you know, is it, you know, because when you think of investment banking, you think that they're sort of more, you know, stodgy guys with three-piece suits smoking pipes in the old days. What's it like now, um, in, you know, in this century and, and how are you finding that experience? Yeah, I, I mean, investment banking, like pure investment banking is definitely different than, you know, what I, I do in my role and what my, my firm does. Uh, but culture wise, I mean, it's great. Um, it's a very open platform. You can walk up to a lar- like highest up managers that have their door oh, cool. open and, you know, non-COVID oh. times again, but um, yeah. everyone's very transparent, very, I, I could go up to any of the portfolio managers and just ask them any questions anytime. And they would probably, you know, know who I am from being around the office. It's just very close knit. Um, nice. it's a big organization globally, but office wise and, you know, the people that you're interacting with like week to week, day to day, um, it's, it feels a lot closer than knowing that there's like thousands of employees around the world too, which I think is really nice. I don't, I don't know if I'd assume that it's the same everywhere. I think some places are a little bit more rigid and, you know, their structure and the way that you have to interact with people. But I think I got lucky to have a firm that is a little bit more, you know, fluid and open. That's really cool. Now you're in a, in a sort of a sales capacity, right? So you're selling product. Um, how, how is, see, I was in sales too, uh, before I became a trader. So how is the sales function now? I mean, in my day, it was, you know, uh, boozy luncheons, uh, all of that sort of thing, you know, uh, what is the sales process like now in, in this day and age? I'm just, I'm, I'm really curious to know. Uh, well, I'm sure there's still, there's definitely still, you know, boozy lunches. So, <laughs> um, oh, good, good. Yeah. So that some things never change. Uh, but I, so I'm in an internal sales role and my external wholesaler partner. So you kind of work one-on-one with someone else. It's like a team. And I have a couple of different partners and they essentially, they live in the territory that they cover geographically. So, you know, I have one that's in California, one that covers, you know, the Chicago area. They live in that area. They don't come into the office like I do. And their job normally would just be to go to different advisors offices, have meetings with the team, find solutions that fit, give updates with portfolio managers or client portfolio managers for products they already use. Um, and just be a value add in any way that you can. Um, 
So sales right now is definitely interesting with COVID. So it's a little bit more, my, my more senior partner that I work with, we're sort of doing the same job. Everyone's working from home. If we're doing meetings, it's over video. Most of us are, we're basically just going back to the days of, and my job consists of this anyways, but my partners that are usually out in the field are kind of going back to their days. If, if they were an internal wholesaler before, just hitting the phones Dialing as much as dialing possible. For yeah. Nice. Dialing, yeah. <laughs> Dial dialing for dolphins. Yeah. Dialing. Yeah. Dial to your Oh yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a 200 call a day guy, so I'm. Oh boy. <laughs> oh, I mean, I used to run a boiler room, so yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it's not quite as brutal these days. No, but no. We have a couple people who have done that. <laughs> I know. I, I, yeah, no. It's always good to close on the phone. That's always fun. Oh yeah. <laughs> So, so did you guys, you said um, you guys are working from home. Did you have any periods when you guys were back into the office? Um, so I think a lot of, especially in Chicago, I do know there are, um, oh, sorry, a lot of uh, different firms that are making different decisions on, you know, if they're going to let people back in at all. My firm, at least as of now, is letting people go in if they want to, um, lower capacity, of course. Um, but I mean, we just have everything spaced out. I haven't been to the office since March. I was a person that thought I would hate working from home and I love it. So, you know, I'd be happy to never go back, honestly, if I'm like taking calls from my couch and, you know, <laughs> don't have to dress up and don't have to commute. So it's kind of a blessing. <laughs> the, the only one good thing of, you know, obviously a pretty rough year, um, all things considered, I, that is something that I've liked, but we do have people in the office. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's good. Yeah. It's, it, it's funny. I was, I was telling JJ this today, uh, you know, if I, I'm in Florida. Uh, and it, they, people act like uh, uh, coronavirus doesn't exist here. You know, like it's, uh, <laughs> it's funny. Like it doesn't exist in Florida. That's what I tell people. Um, so I'm, I assume like, I know, I know they're taking it more seriously there. JJ seems like most other places they are, but, um, yeah, they are. And we're not going to let anybody know that she's take doing client calls from the couch. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Keep that on the. Yeah, we'll watch. keep that on the, on the <laughs> yeah, Working from home is great. No, I, I, I love it. I mean, it, it gets a little, uh, you know, I guess monotonous, but, we, you know, we, we, we're talking with people throughout the day, so it, I guess that helps with it. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, Caitlin, um, as far as the pandemic's effect just on asset management in general, how, how would you say, like, this whole time period's been? It's been really interesting and it's kind of ebbed and flowed in terms of, you know, activity and, you know, what's going on. At the beginning, it was really crazy. We had days where our managers would tell us not to, probably not to call anyone, just when the market was, you know, tanking and way up. And then just like in, you know, like March, April, when things were really, really crazy. Um, not that they haven't been crazy at all for the rest of the year. Um, they, they just kind of said, I know that this is your job, but right now it's probably not the best idea to, you know, be calling and bugging a bunch of people just because <laughs> a lot of we're working with retail advisors, right? So the, you know, education level in terms of what their clients know about the oh. markets is very, it's, um, it's very wide. Like you get a lot of people that might understand a lot of things and you can have sophisticated conversations, but there are some people that know nothing, um, you know, which is fine. I mean, their advisors, you know, doing all of these things for them, but there's still going to be a lot of concerns. So when the market was, going haywire more towards the beginning of the year, those advisors were getting absolutely slammed with calls. Um, we had some clients that told us that they weren't. I think it just depends on your clientele, but for a lot of people, it was a pretty tough time. Um, so activity on our end was kind of lulled for a while. 
um, more towards the middle of the year when people were more used to working at home and kind of getting back into like a new normal, as people say, I don't love that, but um, a different, you know, way of working and interacting with people. We had, there's still money moving this entire year. It's just kind of finding the right people that are, you know, looking for our guidance or our solutions that would be a good fit. Um, especially towards, you know, end of the year, it's gotten a little bit more normalized since after the election, there's a lot of money moving, especially people making year end changes. So, I mean, there's always something to kind of go after something to call on different firms that are putting out different thought leadership on asset classes and everything. So it kind of, the business sort of drives us in certain directions, but there's always still, you know, something to, to be calling on, I guess. Yeah, for sure. As far as, you know, I, I just think back on some of our conversations with, you know, past people or, you know, things I've read that it's just as important as like managing the clients, right? As far as, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm sure you could have some clients that are just very like always calling you what's going on, et cetera, et cetera. Some who are hands off. Uh, I assume you guys are kind of like trained on how to, to handle different types um, of clients. Yeah. And it's, it's just like dealing with people normally, there are just so many different personalities. So I mean, after you've gotten a chance to interact with them once or twice before, even if I'm, you know, making dials throughout the day, you can get a tone pretty quickly for if the person wants to talk to you or not the type of person that, you know, are they quick to the point? Do they want you to kind of hold their hand and walk you through things a little bit more? You get a lot of like, emotional IQ, I guess, almost from a type of job like this, where you're interacting with people like that and getting such varied personalities. Um, I don't, Uh, I don't want to say luckily, I guess, but I don't really work with their end clients at all, who I would say typically would be the ones that if you're having, you know, bad times in the markets or anything would be a little bit more um, kind of skittish and freaking out, asking lots of questions. We definitely get, I mean, a lot of our role is sort of giving supporting like thought leadership and giving our advice in difficult times. Advisors want to hear different viewpoints and what asset managers and their research teams have come up with. Um, because it's definitely varied from firm to firm. So there is a lot of, um, you know, people still coming to us and asking us what we think, but it's just not in the same way that you would see like a retail client going to their advisor, at least normally. Right, right, for sure. So are there any like uh, regulation or rules for yourself um, in trading your own account? Do, is there stipulations around that? So there, there is, and I, to be honest with you. So I, I want to trade like my own account and I just haven't yet. <laughs> COVID's felt like three years. I probably should have, you know, figured it out in this time period. It would have been, you know, a good use of time. But when I started my job, I, you know, just wanted to get my job figured out. And I was like, oh, I can, you know, I can trade my own stuff a little bit later on. I can always start on that. Um, there's definitely rules around it. I don't know. Um, I still need to look into it. I haven't <laughs> talked with like my compliance team or anything. I haven't even gotten that far, but Uh, There is rules around getting trades approved ahead of time, but I don't know for sure if it's just specific to my firm's products, um, because I do know that some of my partners that I've worked with, you know, will invest money in our products that they have conviction around, but you have to get it approved before you place the trade um, because you can't, you know, front running clients and everything like that. So just taking precautions around it. Oh, for sure. For sure. JJ, how how prevalent do you think front running is well at least in now? your day, at least oh god i used to front run everybody uh but that's why the guys next to me would have to take phone calls under the desk um but the, the, here's the thing now the compliance environment my god it, it must be 
what is what is the compliance environment? I mean, we used to bribe our compliance officers. So that that's the way it used to work in, in my day. Now things are completely different and everything is very, very above board, right? And um, and if anybody at Deutsche Bank is listening to this, please, you know, we're, we're, trying, to be, we're trying to behave ourselves. We really are. Mm-hmm. This, nothing badly on poor Caitlin. But um, yeah, what's it like now with having a compliance team as opposed to just, you know, one cat that used to come by and give you a heck every once in a while? <laughs> uh, well, I, I luckily wasn't, or I wasn't working at any point before. I'm like 22. I haven't been working at any point before yeah. they had like these more strict regulations. I mean, I've heard about it, obviously, but it's, it's just, you have to be very, very careful. Everything gets a second screen. Um, mm-hmm. You have to have, if you, especially it's difficult now too in COVID just with us being, you know, a sales team and outreach and um, we're trying to just do it, have as much activity as possible. And you can only do so much of that on the phone. There's a lot of sending emails, sending reports and everything like that. And it just all needs to be compliance approved beforehand. And I'm sure this is the same issue at many different firms, but that just the process and getting things approved is very slow. So you can't really run with big ideas that you get on the fly necessarily because you could have, you know, language in your email that's too promissory mm-hmm. or you could have data points that you didn't support with like approved oh, yeah. marketing material, things like that. So you just need to be really careful about what you're putting out. And there's definitely eyes on you at all times, which is probably for the best, but um, you know, clearly for like end clients and everything, but just in the process and in the flow of like your work day, it, I think it kind of puts put the wrench in things at times i can imagine but mm-hmm. I, I guess working at such a large institution and with the varied amount of product that you have uh you know and the deal flow that that place gets so i'm sure that you know the the, the learning opportunity for you there is just staggering i mean it, you know the whole thing learning how to navigate compliance and clients mm-hmm. and and retail i mean come on retail is not easy Okay. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, whole, you know, institutional at wholesale, you, those guys, they're playing with OPM. So it's, you know, they're a little more faster and looser with it. And, mm-hmm. but retail, you know, you're dealing with people with, you know, who have mom and pops who are investors, right. And they're, so that, that must be, that must be quite challenging. I would imagine. Um, it is. I, I like it though. I think, yeah. and that was part of the reason I was so drawn to a role like this right out of school. You're just getting, exposure to so many different parts of the industry, which for me, you know, trying to decide what I'd want to do um, in the long run was really helpful. And you learn so much from, you know, working with advisors that have different types of clients, they run their books completely different ways. Um, Mm -hmm. And everyone you're working with so many different personalities, you have experience in sales and relationship management, which is important, no matter what you do, you're working with portfolio managers on our side um, and their analysts on their teams. And you're working with, again, compliance, like you said, um, it's just a very broad exposure to everything. Um, so I, I mean, I've been mostly, you know, there are things that I, I find annoying in my day, which I mean, I'm sure everyone does. Um, but for, for the most part, I mean, I'm just thankful to have had, you know, access to, to be learning about these things so early on, um, even the compliance stuff, because that's never going to go away. So that's, that's exactly. always good to, to get exposure to early on, I think. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so, so Kaylee, you were talking about like the, the long run. Um, so career-wise, well, what type of aspirations do you have? I have many. I, should, I w- wish I could narrow them down. But I, um, 
So I do love, you know, the relationship side of things. Sales is an absolute grind. Don't let anyone tell you differently. Um, they might not have good experiences with people in my role, but people can respect that it's very difficult to be in a job that's, you know, product pushing and on the phones all day. So um, I definitely appreciate, you know, the experience I've had in that starting out. Um, it's kind of humbling in a sense. Uh, I am more of a in the weeds, really want to dig into the details of things. Um, I'm working on my CFA as well. I'm um, on, I'm a level two candidate, I guess, for the May exam next year. So working and positioning myself a little bit more towards, you know, the portfolio management side of things, a little bit more technical, um, just because that is something that I think you, you miss out on at least a little bit being in more of a sales role. You don't necessarily have those more difficult, sophisticated conversations all day. Um, they happen from time to time, but it's just, it's not with any sort of consistency, um, and getting exposure to the portfolio management team and client portfolio managers that I worked with. I definitely would like to do something a little bit more hands-on, you know, maybe like a sort of allocator role way down the road, um, I know a bunch of great people from Twitter that, you know, are allocators in the institutional world, which I think is really interesting. Um, I think that research could be, you know, in any sort of research role would be really cool too, which is totally opposite of what I'm doing now. But, you know, you, the nice thing of any role that you have, even if it's not something you want to do, you know, down the road is that you figure out, it puts you in a better direction for what you hope to do eventually. So. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. JJ, uh, I, I want to ask you, something I was, I was thinking on as far as the risk side between, you know, asset management and trading, I would assume because asset management, I think it's, it's definitely a more conservative approach from what I gather the, the, the type of like drawdowns or the type of um, maybe like the psychological aspect that goes into it, JJ, would you think there's uh, much difference or would you speak to that? Well, it's time frame too, right? I mean, yeah. uh, you know, these people are putting, you know, we always call them the other time frame, and they're putting together strategies for people for 20, 30 years, um, so they can ride out those, you know, you know, those fluctuations in the market. So that that's the one thing. I mean, what we're doing is, you know, will we trade on the day time frame? So we're always, you know, everything's about inventory moving back and forth. But um, you know, these guys, portfolio management, I've always found just fascinating in asset management because. I'm for me, a long-term position is 20 minutes. Um, you know, it's like playing hot potato. Yeah, I got it. I get it out of my hands. Right. Just, and um, you know, I'm a trader. And uh, so it, it's, I find it, um, you know, we had Shana on the, on the show and she's the mm -hmm. CIO and it was just fascinating, um, you know, how they, um, you know, have to, you know, manage portfolio managers. And then you were talking about allocation, uh, and allocators and stuff like that. Could you maybe talk a little bit about allocation and stuff? And, and just because some of our, our folks don't really get insight into that. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, more surface level, keep it simple. I mean, there's so much of a difference, I guess, between what you guys do day to day, which I think is really interesting and I want to learn more about. So keep listening to your podcast. Um, I mean, like you were saying, the timelines on it are just so different. And and there's even big differences in between, you know, the clients that I'm working with in, in retail, you know, like the regular mom and pops and even between that and institutional, you know, pensions, endowments, foundations, things like that. Mm. They, they have timelines that are just not really fathomable for, you know, 
the average day person. It's more like into perpetuity almost sometimes, <laughs> you know, there's, I don't, exactly. I mean, probably, you know, the, the people I know that are allocators, you know, on the institutional side might not agree verbatim with me, but much different timelines. They can get into a little bit more sophisticated things. Typically. I mean, you see, there, there are vehicles for getting into, you know, like private equities and hedge funds for regular advisors, but it's just not, it's not something that's as typical. Um, if you're looking between, you know, the clients that I'm dealing with every day, it's more going to be, you know, individual stocks like that you guys might trade or mutual funds, ETFs, like vehicles that are a little bit more simplified or cost efficient. Um, it's just easier to kind of fit, you know, the money that you're putting into different buckets to diversify through those vehicles. Um, and then, you know, institutional asset managers or that have giant chunks of money, much bigger than a lot of, you know, advisors or advisor teams ever get to have. And they're managing that and they don't need that money necessarily at one point in the future, usually, and it's going to be much further out. So they can take a little bit more risk and a higher percentage of their portfolio. And these, and again, this is just all my understanding, but they can get into some really interesting things um, going back, you know, private equity and hedge funds. I don't have you know, any clients that are really asking me for any of that, because, you know, the average day investor is not going to be necessarily looking for that. And it's not something that would fit kind of like their risk profile or their timelines, mm -hmm. usually. So um, even within, I mean, there's a lot of differences between, you know, asset management and, you know, like trading day to day, having a 20 minute position versus a 20 year one. Oh, um, yeah. But it just goes to show, I mean, there's just so much diversity i guess within the space for how people yeah. do what they do and in investing as a whole so i think it's super interesting i'm still learning a ton about it but that was you know my impression from working for i don't know 15 months now or something like that oh, around cool. there <laughs> it's it's great getting somebody's uh you know uh perspective you know in this day and age right off of right off the uh the get-go it's good stuff uh, jj what type of stop do you put for a 20-year position <laughs> For me, oh my god, yeah. Well, what you type know, of stop would we put it? Is, is there even a stop? To the you know, you know, well, here's the thing I always tell people people ask me, Do you trade stocks? and I go, You know, I I have a trouble trading something unless I'm actually manipulating the whole damn thing. Um, you know, if unless I got the whole float, you know, in my desk drawer, um, I just don't feel comfortable, so <laughs> that's I like to sleep at night, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it. Yeah, definitely. I was see. I was also from Vancouver too, which is a you know, it's a, you know, if you hold something for more than twenty minutes, you're <laughs> holding it forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so, so Caitlin, a former podcast uh, guest of ours, Shana, you guys are you guys have a really good relationship. So, uh, speak to uh, how that came about. Uh, I met her through Twitter too. So I guess that's how I make all of my friends, but um, she's great. Uh, so uh, when I was going to move to Chicago and I had already been a little bit on finance Twitter, met a few people, um, some people out of New York city and everything like that, that had connections in Chicago. I had tweeted out, Oh, where's the Chicago FinTwit community at? Did I miss them? Like, cause I didn't know anyone from that space and it just absolutely blew up. I had probably like 50 people reply back to that. Like, I'm right here. Nice to meet you. When are you moving here? Like, we'll have an event when you move out and you can meet a bunch of people, which we ended up doing. And it was so much fun. Um, Shana was one of them. And she had ended up messaging me on the side. She showed up to one of the Chicago, like finance Twitter events that we had done uh, prior to COVID, I believe um, a couple months after I had moved to Chicago. So in the fall of 2019. Um, 
had really liked her, talked to her a bit. And we had talked, you know, on Twitter multiple times before that. So it was just nice to put, you know, a face and a voice to the, to the name and then Twitter at, um, and she had actually, so Thanksgiving was the next month. And since I had more recently moved to Chicago, I wasn't going to head back for, to New York where I'm from for Thanksgiving. And she had messaged me and actually invited me to her home, which is one of the nicest things that anyone, you know, I've met her one time. It was one of the nicest things that I could have asked for and such a nice gesture. Um, so I actually ended up going to her house for Thanksgiving with her, her husband, her, her son, um, Gabe, who I, I love Gabe. Um, I've babysat him now since he's a great kid mm-hmm. um, and one of their family friends too. So just came about through Twitter, but it ended up being a lot more than that. She's um, a good mentor and friend of mine now as, as well. Yeah, well, that's awesome. That's a, that's a great mentor to have. Shout out to Shana. Really, really just love her, her story uh, and just her resiliency uh, just, just, just really tough, tough as nails. And I just really appreciate that <laughs> about her. Yeah. So great, great mentor you got there. All right. So now, now's my favorite part of the podcast. We, we got done with like all like the technical talk, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> got some, uh, you know, just, just miscellaneous type questions. You mentioned Caitlin, you're from New York. Now you're, I, I think you're from like a smaller town in New York, correct? Now you're living in the windy city. So uh, what's that like? What's the differences? <laughs> Uh, well, so my, my hometown, I graduated 50 kids in high school population of my town itself. My school was like um, two or three towns combined. Um, maybe population of a thousand in my hometown. We have one stoplight. There's this like a seven 11 and a bar on main street. And that's like the only thing there. Um, the closest mall is like 45 minutes away. The closest airports over an hour. It's interesting. Um, but I always knew that I was going to be a city person. I mean, I did a ton of traveling from sports and just traveling with my family growing up, um, had been to a lot of cities, had been to New York. And I just, it always, I just felt like it was somewhere that I would much rather be. I didn't, I mean, I loved where I grew up for growing up. It's a super safe place and, you know, you can do a lot of really fun things. And so that was good, but I knew I wasn't going to stay. I knew it for as long back as you could know that, you know, you wanted to move out of somewhere. Um, good to visit, but, um, Chicago, I had been here for like my school trips that I mentioned three times and I fell in love with it. So when I started looking for jobs, I think I looked in, I mean, I, I applied pretty much everywhere. I was an absolutely psychotic about applying for jobs and it was just unbelievable. I was every day. Um, I had spreadsheets and it was probably a little overkill, but I looked pretty much everywhere around the country, Chicago and New York city were the two biggest places that I looked at though. Um, so when I ended up, when I got my offer for the firm I'm at now, I actually, I had an offer in New York city as well, but I just fell in love with Chicago so much that they were pretty comparable offers too, but I just knew that I had to go with this one. So it's been really good. Um, I mean, COVID I, it, we've been in COVID for a lot of the time that I've been here. Um, mm-hmm. and I still love it, which I think says a lot, but it's a really fun place. Very underrated. Uh, The winters aren't great, but I'm from upstate New York, so I have nothing bad to say about it. People just don't like the cold, so it might not be the place for them, but I'm, I'm okay with it. Just get a good coat. Yeah, it's got a good coat. You know, (laughs) yeah, like I'm a little mixed about it. Like I miss, uh, and and JJ, you're going to laugh because you know me, Uh, I I miss the winter clothing, you know, like, uh, (laughs) (laughs) no, I do. You you, you can get fresh with some like winter clothing. Items. You can fall and winter. It's my favorite for like finding clothes to wear and everything. So I'm with yeah. you. So I got it. So I got to enjoy now. Like it's funny because everyone's like getting all bundled up now in like the, the northern regions. 
this is this is like the best time of like year for Florida, you know, like it's like 70s, 60s, you know, you might dip a little bit lower. Um, so, you know, I could get to throw on a little hoodie once in a while, but that's about it. I, <laughs> I still, I, I can't get, I, I, JJ, I can't uh, bring myself to throw away some of my winter clothing. I still have it after like almost <laughs> a day down here. Uh, you know, there's always something nice about a cashmere overcoat and stuff like that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I I love New York. The New York cold that's that's perfect, right? Yeah, New York, yeah. And New York cold. That's good. Yeah. where I live now. Good God, it's this. It's, you know, it's like Siberia is like a vacation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm above North Dakota right now in Canada, so. Yeah, you, you guys see Goldman is uh, moving to Miami, <laughs> I believe, right? That's, I didn't yeah. know they actually decided where it was. Is it Miami? I, I, I assumed it was Miami. I don't know. I think so. There's been some headlines yeah. that Goldman's moving to Miami. So okay. I guess they'll be. I uh, saw Southern Florida. That's awesome now. Oh, Good yeah, maybe, for them. Yeah. Well, even, no kidding. Yeah. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see if that's like a, starts like a movement. You know, I mean, they, they, got, they got like a few <laughs> people down here already, like West Palm, Miami, oh, Fort yeah. Lauderdale. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So. Yeah, I love it down here. I love it. It's it's nice. All right. So you mentioned you traveled a decent bit. Any place that really sticks out? Uh, probably my favorite place I've ever been was Croatia. Uh, my brother studied abroad in Scotland for a year for his master's degree. So I went out and visited and we went to actually this was just a great trip. But he lived in Edinburgh in Scotland, which was this is a really fun city, too. And then we went to Budapest. Um, which was unbelievable. If you're like an architecture person, it was just crazy to see some of the things that they had there. Uh, And then we went all over the place, basically in Croatia, which was, I mean, a lot of people haven't been there, but I mean, who are big travelers, it's just a little bit off the beaten path for a lot of places you'd go in Europe, but it was unbelievably beautiful and very cheap to get around. And just everything was so picturesque. The people were so nice and uh, I want to go back, but I'm gonna. I've been trying not to think about the whole, you know, where I'd like to travel while we're stuck in my tiny apartment. But <laughs> yeah, thoughts for another day. <laughs> yeah, uh, JJ's uh, a little familiar with Croatian culture. Uh, yeah, kind of. A little too familiar. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I um, yes, I, I used to be married into it, but not anymore. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no. Yeah, I'm very familiar with Croatian culture. That's for that's for that's for the love and trading podcasts. Mm-hmm. We'll save that for that one. Um, all right, let's see what's up. Okay, so you got a um, a hobby around you know cocktail making. I know when we were on stream together, they were mentioning you uh, get searching for maybe a publisher for a book or something. Tell us a little bit about this. Yeah. So since COVID started, some people took up healthy habits, you know, exercising every day, reading more books. And mine was um, filling up the very large bar I have in my small apartment with a bunch of fun things and figuring out, you know, drinks that I can make with them. And my roommate certainly appreciates that too. Uh, So Mm -hmm. started making a whole bunch of cocktails. I mean, I had done it a little bit before COVID too, but I think this just sped it up a little bit, you know, being stuck at home and not that many things to do. So experimented a lot with a bunch of different things that I hadn't tried before, you know, got a little bit more used to recipes and how things would normally be made if you were like in a bar or anything. I was more used to, you know, in college, like, oh, I'll have a rum and Coke or a vodka cranberry, just like the really easy things that, you know, college kids would be more used to. You let to drink at Catholic college? What? (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's permitted? (laughs) It is. It's actually encouraged. Well, not by some people, but... (laughs) 
Um, so I started doing a bunch of cocktails. I started taking pictures of them and I did like hashtag drink of the day. I put it on my Twitter all the time now, just because I was just sort of messing around with different things that might be good. If they ended up being good, I would share them with people. They tell me to share the recipes with them. So it sort of started that way. Um, it's sped up into a little bit more than that. Kind of have my own recipes and things that have come about that are my favorites, um, aside from some more like traditional ones. Uh, the book that we were talking about on the Stock Twith live stream for the charity event, I, I mean, I've been making a, a, a bunch of drinks and then, you know, more typical recipes and then the ones I've made myself. I wanted to put it into a book. Um, but I wanted it to be, you know, not just like a normal cocktail book, a little bit more tilted towards the like finance Twitter audience that I have, um, name the drinks after very like punny finance terms or different historical events, different people, mm -hmm. but also do, you know, like a more educational sort of write up on, you know, the history of whatever that term was or what it means, um, and give a little bit more color around it. Um, so it's just an idea. I've, I mean, I've talked to the publisher, um, fortunately to kind of learn a little bit more about the process because I, you know, obviously haven't published a book before and there's a lot that goes into it. Um, so st still more in, you know, like the thought process stages, but it's an idea I'm, you yeah. know, excited about and hopefully we'll go through it. I'll send you a copy of it gets that far. <laughs> yes. Yes. Please do. Please do. What's, what's a favorite uh, cocktail if you have one? Uh, I'm a big, just, anything vodka. I'm a big vodka fan. I, I like to stick with the pretty simple stuff. I make a lot of cosmopolitan. So literally just like cranberry juice, lime, vodka, and like triple sec. So super easy. Um, what else? I like a lot of flavored vodkas. Those are always good. My fallback is like a gin and tonic if I were ever out somewhere. Um, that's something that I get a lot. Um, there are a lot more, you know, complicated recipes that I work on now. Um, I have a huge sweet tooth. So pretty much anything that's like sugary and probably bad for you is, <laughs> you know, one of the first places that I'd start. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I, I just take mine straight now. Like I can't, I don't know. I, I, I can't do the, 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 the sugar, the, the sweet too mm -hmm. much. Um, I, I need you guys to clarify this for me. Cause I'm not sure. Cause I've had someone tell me, right. And I stopped drinking vodka because of this. Right. Um, I, uh, I get a little bit more on edge at times if I'm drinking vodka, like, you know, so if someone says like a sideways comment, I might be, you know, more apt to <laughs> a little more. So I, I just stick to dark now, uh, which I do. I, I like whiskey anyway. Um, is that a true or a false statement? I, I don't know. I don't know if there's like science behind that. I kind of feel like that's true. If I drink like different liquors or wine, <laughs> I feel like it, I feel like I definitely have like different moods with that too. So I kind of think that it's true, but I actually was reading recently, I didn't read enough into it, obviously, to give more color on it, as you can tell right now. But um, I, I was reading so, like an article the other day, and it was saying that that's just entirely false. Mm -hmm. But I'm kind of holding out hope. I really don't think that it can be entirely a lie, just from, you know, <laughs> my experience and yours. You know, I don't think it's a coincidence, but yeah, well, I'm no scientist. I I, definitely from my bouncer days, there are definitely things that you <laughs> people drinking. They go a little snaky, you know, Yeah. like mm -hmm. if, if they're drinking a little too much Jack Daniels on, you know, straight, <laughs> they get a little, <laughs> you know, uh, that's just, uh, just for breaking up fights and Uzo too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, nah, cause I, I've been thinking, yeah, like the, I don't know. Cause I, I do, I do like vodka. I enjoy vodka, but I've been, I've been staring away a little bit from it, but uh, we'll, we'll see. Um, you mentioned uh, about people taking up good hobbies 
during COVID. And a good part for me, I mean, I've always liked reading, but I really just read even more. Uh, you you come across as someone who probably enjoys reading. Uh, what, what have you been reading lately? I do. Um, so once I've recently read books from um, my friend Brian Portnoy and uh, Josh Brown, you're familiar, they just let out a book called How I Invest My Money, mm-hmm. um, which a lot of people have been buying up and kind of tweeting about and everything. It's just talking to different people in the finance industry about how they um, personally manage their own money, what they invested in, what they put the most value in and kind of what their philosophy is on investing. So that was an interesting read. Um, Morgan Housel's Psychology of Money um, bought a copy of that as soon as it came out. I'm a huge fan of his. So that was, that's an incredible book. Um, Apparently there's trying to make it into a screenplay. Very curious on how they would, they would make that happen. I don't know, but I'd love to see it happen. Um, uh, I'm right now, I'm a big into audiobooks too. I just think it's easier. I think I got into it like commuting to work and whatnot, just listening to it on the train. Um, I'm listening to um, The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton. I just started that. And then another good one a while back towards beginning of quarantine that took me forever to finish because it's the longest audiobook I've ever heard of in my life was uh, the Steve Jobs biography, which mm. was really, really, oh. it was so interesting. He was a really interesting guy. So that was, it was really, really long, but totally worth it. So lots of things you didn't know before. Nice, nice. Do you, uh, other than like finance related topics, do, do you have a, um, a favorite genre of reading? I don't, I don't know if I really have read enough of like one specific genre to say so no, but I'm a big like, like F. Scott Fitzgerald fan. So like, so like, he's written a lot of really good books, short stories. So I love reading those. These days, it's more so investing books, though, really like finance, if I know someone that wrote one or, you know, one that I know is popular, I'll read that. But I feel like I've kind of gotten off of the reading bandwagon in the past few months of quarantine. I went pretty hard at it in the beginning, just not having things to do. So need to get back to that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, I like how you just like dropped like, oh yeah, my friend, Josh Brown. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know Josh, yeah, but I know mean? Brian. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay, okay. Throw All that right. out there. <laughs> okay. How do, you, how do you manage working full-time, studying for your CFA and actually you know, having any time for yourself. I mean, that CFA must be, that's a, that's a real barn burner. You know, that's tough. It is. Um, they don't really balance out. Um, <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> it's, it works been pretty busy. So it's a lot of work. And then, um, I mean, CFA, I, so I'm taking it in May and just started studying like a couple weeks back. And it's supposed to be, um, when I studied for level one, I was still in college. So it was easier because you're so used to having your day segmented for like classes. Mm-hmm. So I just put in my schedule, like a class. And I was so much more used to doing that then, but now that I'm working, it's a lot more, oh, I got holed up on work for an extra like hour and a half today, or I need to get something done on a weekend that I didn't finish for work or something. Mm. And just choose up a lot of time. And then, you know, during COVID, you want to see a lot of your friends because it's just mental health wise, you know, get out and see people or have talk to people and take the time. Mm. Um, so the CFA stuff is, I need to probably hardwire that into my schedule a little bit better. It's not been going well. Um, <laughs> so it's just a little bit more of waking up a little bit earlier and going to bed a little bit later and being more productive with your time. Like it's always doable, but it's just like a grin and bear it, figure it out thing. It's a little painful sometimes. I was just wondering because I, I've, yeah, I've not, you know, uh, never come close to those kind, kind of exams. So it's just, uh, yeah, that must be quite something. It's a lot of time. Yeah. 
How's the how's the situation um, in like Chicago? Are you guys like because uh, I know certain places are like reshutting back down. Um, is is that happening uh, by you guys or is there talks of it? it? It is. So I was at home in New York for Thanksgiving and came back probably a week or two ago. I can't even remember now, but they had shut down. They had basically shut down the city again. Um, restaurants. I don't know if you can eat inside anymore. I think it's just outdoors, which I mean, it's pretty cold out here. So feels like a lot more shut down. We had, we had bars open until like three in the morning at one point during all of this. Like we got to the point that our case numbers were so good that we opened up quite a bit that you could have a pretty high capacity inside at restaurants, like gyms and everything were open. I think the gyms still are, but a lot of like the dining and drinking, like it's, it's not flying anymore. So they've definitely shut down more and, you know, since end of November, early December. Yeah. It's just, it's just crazy to me. Like, you know, um, JJ, I was telling you this, uh, like the clubs here, the bars are like jam packed. Like the club was like shoulder, like shoulder to shoulder. And, and nobody's it, wearing a mask. Nobody's wearing a mask. Yeah. Yeah. Not, it's, that's what I said. It doesn't exist down here. You know, it's wow. but crazy. JJ, any more questions? Oh, let's see. I, I was just, uh, no, it's just really great to have somebody on, on the show that, uh, you know, is, is starting off in this industry. And uh, it's nice to get that perspective uh, because it's so long since I've worked in the industry that, uh, and it's changed so much. And I never really worked at a larger institution and Deutsche is the largest, you know, German bank. So it's, and even though it's uh, spun off, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great perspective to see um, someone young working and uh, really, you know, uh, really reaching for it. It's great reaching for that brass ring. It's, it's really, really cool. And, uh, it's wonderful having you on the show. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Make my big finance podcast debut. So thank you for that. (laughs) That's good. We, we, we want to inspire young people in finance and, and, uh, you know, get more people into it. Yes, for sure. For sure. And so that's going to conclude today's episode of confessions of a market maker. If you guys enjoyed the show, please rate and review it for us. If you'd like to learn market auction theory, market profile, trade futures, trade equities, and or options, join JJ and I at microefutures.com. Caitlin, uh, tell people where they can find you and anything else you want them to know. You can find me on Twitter at DeadKateBounce. <laughs> DeadKateBounce. All right. Yes. Anything, anything else for them? Uh, that's, that's it. That's, that's all you need to know. That's all you need to know. Follow her. <laughs> She's a good follow on Twitter. Uh, both, you know, uh, entertaining and you get some, you know, educational anecdotes from time to time. Caitlin, appreciate it. Yeah, you got a good skill set. Um, you got a good mentor. Uh, the future's looking bright. Appreciate you coming on. Thank you. All right. And so for Caitlin Cook, I'm Paulie Walnuts. He's a gorilla of House Street. You stop, though. So.